0: you are thinking, is he going to say anything? <laughs> I'm reminded of um, Jesus when he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And most of the time, in a lot of circles, you hear people talk about um, that that means that, you know, the We'll defeat the powers of, of death. We'll defeat the enemies of the church. And, you know, the, the uh, bad people are not going to prevail against the church. And they'll apply it to everything from, you know, we're going to buy that land. We're going to build that building. We're going to do this, that. And, you know, the, all these problems they have are not going to prevail against the church. And it has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying. You know what Jesus is saying when he talks about the gates of Hades, that was a euphemism for death. And what he's saying is this, there will never be a time in history when there's not a church. In other words, he will preserve his church, he will build his church, and it doesn't matter how many generations pass away, there will be a church, because we are tempted, if we are not careful, to think, as my generation sometimes does, that, oh, I weep for the next generation, because, uh, you know, will Christianity just fade into the past? Will it become something that future generations look back on and talk about with memory and some confusion about what they really said? Said what they really taught, what they really believed and Jesus said, you yeah, know, that time's never coming because I'm still redeeming people. I am still saving people. I'm still changing lives and doing what I do and teaching them to obey because that's how we walk in Christ. Isn't know what he said? If you love me, obey my commandments. So what does it say about a person that hates his commandments? You see, we think. well, when we get to the that part this morning when it talks about the world rejecting Christ, nobody like just says, well, I reject Jesus. If you reject His Word, you reject Christ. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But the reason I'm reminded about him saying that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it is because of the wonderful sounds of young children. And sometimes parents, and I've been there, trust me, um, you get a little uh, apprehensive or you get a little embarrassed and you try to, you know, tell your child to be quiet real, you know, outside your mouth or real quietly. Or perhaps you even give them a, a look from the pulpit. And perhaps you take a break between, um, you know, during offering to minister to your child, um, which anyway, that happened. Um, but my point is this, don't, because you know what that's the sound of? That's the sound of the future. That is the sound of the next generation of young people and children that are being raised in the church who will become the church and become part of the church. And so I'm encouraged by it. Um, so, um, you know, thank you for having your children here this morning. It's a blessing uh, and an encouragement to me. We come to this morning, uh, First Peter chapter uh, 2. We're going to begin this morning at verse 6. I... Uh, intended last week to get through uh, verse four through ten, and we didn't quite get there, so we're going to pick up with verse six, and uh, where we left off. Let remind you while you're turning there, First Peter chapter two, uh, the the paragraph this this passage or the whole thought really begins in verse four, um, and we'll read that just so we have context. He says, "In coming to him, or in since you have come to him, as a living stone rejected by men." But choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for the ho- for a holy priesthood, in order to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Remember that uh, because we're going to talk this morning about redeeming, reclaiming the church and the way we need to do that is by remembering two things, the foundation of the church and the purpose of the church because we have those things so often skewed today. So we want to redeem the church first by redeeming the foundation of the church and making sure that somehow the, the dirt hasn't slid off the foundation because when we get away from the foundation the building falls and the whole thing becomes about something it was never supposed to be about. And that has happened in many churches today. We're going to talk about that. And this is what Peter has to say about this. For, and that word means a lot because he's going to tell you why he has just said what he said, that it is our job to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for or because this is contained in Scripture. And I think it is the ESV, if you have the ESV version, uh, it really translates that a little better, I think. And it says this, it says, For this stands in Scripture. And that is the only place in the New Testament where we find that particular word. And it has the, the indication not just of being there. Okay, because a lot of you know, uh, we have a lot of people that come to church, and they're there. Yeah, but being there and standing are two different things in Greek thought. This is not the idea that, well, you know, it's there in Scripture. Peter's saying it stands in Scripture. And the idea is this, it stands above, it stands out, it stands like a glaring light. It's like a beacon or a lighthouse. It stands in Scripture. And I like that, that phrase when he says, it stands in Scripture. In fact, I'm so fond of that kind of wording that I made uh, Hayden a t-shirt. Um, I thought it would be really cool. I looked it up, not that I know Latin, but I looked it up in Google Translator. And so his t-shirt says in Latin, from father to son, truth stands. Because it stands in Scripture. It stands out, it stands firm, steadfast, immovable, unchangeable. It is God's eternal word. And what does he say about that? Every grass fades away, but the word of God lasts forever. It stands in Scripture. Well, what, what is it that stands in Scripture? And then he quotes, and I told you he would. Last week I talked about the fact that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so Peter begins to do what all good preachers do. He takes the Word of God, and he begins to apply it, he begins to interpret it, he begins to explain it to them. So he says this. He quotes from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen when he says, it is contained in Scripture, quote, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, Stone. and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed and so he talks about this cornerstone that is going to be the foundation of the church remember just above that he has talked about Jesus being the cornerstone and he talks about how Jesus is preeminent in the church and we get sideways sometimes in the church if we begin to make church founded on anything other than Jesus we need to return, if we're going to reclaim the church for Christ, we need to return the church to the foundation upon which it is supposed to be built and upon which He will build. He will build His church, and He builds it on Himself as the cornerstone. And there He stands, steadfast. Though He is denied, He is undeniable. Though He is, he is spoken of illly, He is perfect and holy. And though men deny Him and reject Him, there He stands. As the cornerstone of the church, I lay in Zion. Uh, I don't know if you've ever wondered where's Zion come from. Where's what's that word? Uh, In Hebrew, thought it's the idea of a fortress or an outpost. Uh, It is a place of safety and refuge, and it was eventually applied to the city of David, Jerusalem. Now, it was not always applied to that in the Old Testament before the time of David. The word is used, but it's always a reference to a fort or a fortress or a safe haven. But in this text, he is talking about the city of David. So in the, the city in Zion or Jerusalem, now the, the important part of that is, of course, is Jerusalem is seen as uh, the, as heaven, as the new foundation upon which the church is built. And the new heavens and the new earth. They talk about the new city of Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. So he says, I'm laying in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Then he says, this precious, this precious value then is for you who believe. And then he begins to do the thing that we actually uh, can't stand in our culture today. He begins to, to draw lines. And it begins to make distinctions that people do not like. We talked about Sunday school class this morning that people love John 3.16, but dare not go to 3.17-18. Why? Because it says people without Christ are condemned already. For God so loved the world that He sent His own begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have. Everlasting life, you've seen it, I've seen it, you see it at ball games, you see it at, you know, soccer games, you see it everywhere. And as Jesse said this morning, and he's correct, even non-Christians know that verse. But it goes on to say he sent him not to condemn the world, but because the world was condemned already. The world doesn't know it and doesn't want to know it, and doesn't want to hear that they are on their way to a place and state the Bible describes in several ways and calls several names, and we call it hell. And essentially, they're headed for an eternity, separated from the goodness of God and all that is holy and all that is pure and all that is good. And whatever is left, that's the place and state in which people outside of Christ will find themselves. Well, the world doesn't want to know that. That is not what we would call good news for most people. So then he quotes Psalm 118.22. And he says, "...the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone." And a stone of stumbling block, and a rock of offense. He quotes Isaiah there. Jesus is a divider. And so often we hear churches, preachers, and pastors say, "You know, Jesus came uh, to no peace." In fact, there was a bumper sticker that went around a while ago. And I don't know if you ever saw it. It said, "No Jesus, no no peace." And then it said, "K and O G, K and no Jesus." Then you can, K and O, know peace. And that's not what Jesus said. You know what he said of himself? He said, do not think that I came to bring peace, but I came to divide. Father from son, mother from daughter, He came to divide. And not in a way that's like I want you to fight and hate each other, but He came to divide, and the distinction is this. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. There are only two kinds of people in the world as far as Jesus is concerned. There are those who are with Him, in Him, and who have been redeemed and saved, were made, regenerated, and there are those who are not. Period. There is no in-between. You either are in Christ or you're not in Christ. And if we're in Christ and we understand our purpose for gathering, then we build the church on the cornerstone. When we get away from the purpose of the church, and the foundation of the church, then church becomes something that is more man-made than Christ made. And it is more about feeling and emotion and uh, all kinds of things, but it's not about Jesus anymore. It becomes, ironically, about more about the Holy Spirit than it does about Jesus. And the ironic thing about that is the job, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus. And to be caught in the Holy Spirit, if it doesn't cause you to glorify, to magnify, to exalt and point to Jesus, then that is not the purpose of the Holy Spirit. So when we build the foundation of the church on Jesus, then it's steadfast. And when we talk about building the church on Jesus... That is done not just by the pastor the elders or whatever groups deciding sort of the programs that the church is going to have and sort of the emphases the purpose of the church is going to have and all that. That's decided by each individual member. Because Jesus is not just the cornerstone of the church as a whole, but he's the cornerstone of the church in the heart of every believer. And this is One of the things I think we fail to understand. Church is not a part of your life. Jesus is not a part of your life. He is your life. And there is no part of your life that's off limits for Christ. My politics are founded on the cornerstone of Jesus. My relationship is founded on the cornerstone of Jesus. The way I treat my wife, the way I treat my kids, the way I I deal with people around me—it's not founded on just how I feel. It's not founded on just my particular emotion that day. It is founded on the cornerstone of Jesus. So that when I go to vote, it is founded on the cornerstone of Jesus. And you think, well, you know, don't mix politics and religion. I mix my faith in. Christ with everything, and because He is the cornerstone, if I remove Him, then everything becomes worthless. If you're not founded on the cornerstone, you will find yourself just sort of floating around from opinion to opinion, whatever kind of new wave blows through the the culture or the community or society, you just find yourself grabbing onto because you have no foundation. The foundation for the believer is in Christ. He affects everything about your life. And if he doesn't affect everything about your life, please understand this. You may think you love Him, but if he doesn't affect everything in your life, then He is not your cornerstone. You've built your life with Christ somewhere in your life, but we are really good at compartmentalizing our life. I have my work life. There's the professional me with my goals and aspirations. And these are the things I'm trying to achieve. And and then I have my social life. And this is what I do and how I behave and how I act. The friends I have. And then I have my intimate life with my my spouse. I have my marriage. I have my close family. You have those kind of relationships. And I act and behave uh, one way. And then I have my religious life. And if you put it all together, that's my life. That's how a lot of people look at it. It's just, it's a, and some people say, you know, church is a big part of my life. And when I say church, please understand I'm not talking about the particular local gathering right here today. When I talk about the church, I'm talking about being in the body of Christ. So I'm talking about church with a capital C. I'm talking about the collective community of all believers. So when I say that, I mean as a believer, We say church isn't important in my life. And by that implication, if Jesus is just important in your life, then you're not making him your foundation. Because Jesus is not important in my life. He is essential to my life, He is everything in life. There's nothing in my life that's built on anything other than the cornerstone. So we have to ask ourselves. Is he the cornerstone of my life when I leave this place? And here's what we have mistakenly decided. That church is a place where I can come and kind of get things squared away a little bit. And, and and the rest of the week I struggle with things and then church I come back and, and I get squared away a little bit, get back on, you know, the straight and narrow. And then I, I struggle. And we have come to see church. In fact, you've, you've heard people say it. I've heard people say it. They will say this. Pastor, I, just, I can't wait to Sunday because Sunday is when I can spiritually recharge my battery. And I come to church, and I get energy, and I get, I get input, I get encouragement, and I hope you do. I hope you get all those things. But the purpose of the church, and hear me correctly, the purpose of the church is not to recharge your batteries. I hope that happens. I hope you are encouraged. And I hope you do receive spiritual renewal here. But that is not really the purpose of the church. That's a byproduct. That's what happens when the church begins to live out its purpose because its purpose, as defined by Peter here, and Paul says some other things about the church, but we're going to stay with this passage. This passage gives us two purposes of the church, none of which have anything to do with recharging your batteries. In fact, the opposite is true. When you come to church, as a believer, built and founded on Jesus Christ as your cornerstone, you spend the week walking with Him, fellowshipping with Him, growing in Christ. You spend the week living the Christian life based on Christ, and when you come to church, you know what you give? You give energy. You give your spiritual self to other people. And, and Peter says this, our first purpose is that we may offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We talked about that list last week, what that looks like. looks like worship, even through tears. It looks like prayer, even when things are difficult. It looks like, you know, giving of yourself, even though it causes you discomfort. It's about making Him first. Now, what's the other purpose of the church? It's down a little bit, and we'll get there. We'll come back to it. But if you look um, I believe it's verse 9. He says, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession." And he quotes four different prophets in that short in that short section. Those those titles come from the Old Testament. So again, he's bringing in the Old Testament. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people from God's own, for God's own possession. Now, he's just preaching. He's telling you who you are and what you are, and he's telling you your purpose. You are God's possession. Now, understand, when this is taken, it's taken from the passages that refer to, to the Hebrew children, right? You understand, in the Old Testament, they talk about you are a holy nation, you're a chosen people. It's talking about Israel. But here, Peter applies it to who? The church. So as the church, this is what we are. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And in the same way that in the Old Testament, Israel was all of those things, in the New Testament, in God's new era, we are Israel. The church has become the people of God, a chosen race in God's own possession. That is the church. Now here's the reason that God did all that, and here's the reason we exist. The second function of the church, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you. That's our function. To offer spiritual sacrifices and to proclaim His excellence that's what the church should be doing now do you get spiritual energy from that recharge your batteries I hope so that's not our that's not the stated purpose that's a byproduct of doing what we really are supposed to be doing is that we come collectively and we share and encourage one another about the week we've just had and you may have had one of those weeks where you come and say you know it was a struggle struggle but God is faithful I got bad news here, bad news there, but God is faithful. You know? It, you may come, those say, you know what, I am so blessed, I just don't even know what to do with myself. I, God has just poured out and poured out and poured out, and I keep saying, Lord, I don't deserve it, and the more I tell God I don't deserve it, truly from my heart, He just keeps pouring out blessings, and I, I don't know what to do with You know? That's what God said, see, if I won't pour out blessings, the more you give, God's going to outgive give you. And I'm not saying that comes in monetary means or anything like that. We're not going to talk, you know, health and wealth here. What I'm talking about are those spiritual blessings you can't put a price tag on. You know what I'm talking about? When, when, <laughs> when you come to church after the Father's son camp out and your, your little grandson has shaved his head so it can look more like, you know, a certain person. You can't put a price tag on that. No. You can't put a price tag on being able to see your your daughter and son in law just around the corner. I know many parents, many grandparents don't have that joy. I know, you know, many they're 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 children in foreign countries on the mission field. What a joy. And there are times in my life this week included, you know. After the chili cook-off, even after that, Dana, I just I went home Saturday morning in the rain, and it rained buckets on us. By the way, I mean it just poured, and it always does. I, you know, Stephen says here's the date for the Bonfire, so it was going to rain. It's going to rain on Saturday every year. It just pours rain. It seems like the next morning, but what a joy! And I went home, and I was tired and, because. I have sleeping with Everett is no joy at all, but, um, and we were in, the, in, you know, we were on a queen-size mattress in my camper, and uh, I, I slept on the edge, like this much bed. Anyway, um, I went home that, that day and took a shower and laid down, and, and I almost couldn't sleep, because of what joy. Because look at look at what God's done for me, and I don't deserve any of it. What a wonderful body of Christ I'm called to serve, and and I you know felt back on the chilly thing the night before, and then Sundays before that, and then I promise you, so many of your faces just crossed my mind, and I was if you start naming names, you you know I don't have time to name all names in my prayer, and I just felt so blessed at what God has given us, what God has done for us, and blessings you can't put a price tag on, and He's just laid them at my feet, and I don't deserve any of it. So I come here this morning not to recharge my batteries, but because I want to share with you His excellencies. I want to share with you who Christ is and what He's done, what He's capable of. And He says to us, you have been chosen by God His own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you. So I am telling you, Christ is excellent. He is superlative in all His ways. There's no blemish in Him. None at all. He is perfect, holy, righteous, and He is seated and stands as the cornerstone of your very life. And everything about your life, every area of your life that you somehow want to compartmentalize is all on Jesus the Christ. And what a wonder He is. You say, well, I'm glad you had that kind of week. But That's not the kind of week I had. I have one of those weeks of the struggle. I have one of those weeks where you wonder and sometimes, if you're like William, say out loud, God, where are you in this? You know what? I've had those weeks too. I've had weeks where you just think, God, I know your word tells me that you're here. My theology says you will never, you will never leave me nor forsake me. Everything I believe, in my mind is that you are here and you're present, and you're good and you're holy and all of those things. But I don't feel you. I don't sense you. I don't see you. I don't know what you're doing, and I certainly don't know what I'm doing. And you just cry out. I had some experiences like that in my life, and at the end of which I felt like all I could do was just breathe. And I wasn't sure the next breath was even coming. And yet God in the stillness of that moment showed up. In a way I had never known Him before. In a gentle, loving, comforting, convicting, restoring, renewing presence. And even as the sun came up, I suddenly was able to worship Him in ways I'd never before as making the sun to rise. (laughs) What a joy! This is one of the worst times of my life. The darkness is unimaginable and ineffable. And yet when the sun came up that next morning and I was still breathing, I, I, all I could do is fall on my face. And I'm not just, you know, people talk about, oh, I fell on my face. I'm seriously, literally falling on my face. All I could do is worship God. Say, you are holy. You are good and superlative. You are perfect. And you make the sun to rise and the sun to set. You tell the moon what to do. You make the, only, the oceans only go so far. You draw those boundaries. All I can do is worship. And yet, somehow, you accept that worship. And I stand here knowing who I am, knowing the things I've done, knowing the places I've been, and you say I stand perfect before you. What a holy God. What a magnificent Savior. So I'm here to tell you of the excellencies of Christ who causes us, Jude says, to stand before Him. I wonder I love this next phrase he says he's called you out of darkness into the light you know into the his marvelous light it is like marvelous Can you imagine walking in darkness through this world as it is right now? I don't know. I honestly struggle to understand how people who are humanists, people who are, you know, atheists, people who are just agnostic, people who are just kind of... I, I, I struggle how they even get through. To grope in the darkness... Reaching for something that is never going to be found. Some hope, some kind of security, some kind of meaning to it all. Some kind of purpose in life. There has to be more than just this momentary time that we are here in this life. There has to be more, doesn't there? And the agnostic will say, well maybe, nobody knows, so don't worry about it. Of course the atheists will say, nope, this is all you get. Make the most of it, brother. Because once you cease to breathe, you cease to exist in all in all ways. There's nothing after this, so you better enjoy it while you can. What? What kind of life is that? I mean, you can have everything the world has to offer, but you know, there's always the but. Then what? Right. Well, I I love my family, and I'm glad you do. But then what? God, you know, I've made a lot of money. I have everything. I have a yacht. I, you know, let's let's ask Jeff Bezos. You yeah. know, you got like you kind of trades places with a couple other people for the richest person in the world. Then what? Because I got news for you. You're not you're not taking any of it with you. Then what? I mean, there has to be more than this momentary existence. And the good news, the gospel, is, yes, there is. There's absolutely is. But as long as you're groping in the darkness, rejecting Christ, you're never going to find it. You know, when I get up in the morning, one of the things I just hate is sort of, you know, everybody has a pet peeve. Here's one of mine. I hate getting up early, especially in the wintertime, like this time of year. You get up even at 6.30, 7.00, it's dark. And some people like that. They, they get up and, you know, feel through the drawer, can find what they want, never find anything. And, and I hate groping in the darkness in the morning. So, first thing I do when I get up, I turn the, I turn the bedroom light on and it's bright. I kind of like, you know, I get the 100 watt bulbs because I'm not chintzy. I like bright. I like to be able to see what I'm doing. I don't want to rope around hoping I find, you know, the same two socks or something. I just, that's a pet peeve. I like being in the light. You know, spiritually, I love being in His marvelous light. And it's not my light. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, that's not anything I did. It's walking in the light of Christ. And here's the thing, that light, when you first flick it on, I mean, even the dog winces, like, what? What are you doing? And I do too for a second. It's blinding. It? It's marvelous. And it's overwhelming. And a lot of Christians are like that. They come into the light of Christ uh, as babes in Christ and they're just amazed. They're overwhelmed. They're just, everything's wondrous. And, and that's the way it should be, by the way, but that's the way it should stay. But here's what happens. When it, your eyes adjust to the light. And the light doesn't seem so bright anymore. Doesn't seem so wondrous anymore. You get real accustomed to the light. For some Christians, here's our problem. We have been walking in the light so long that we have forgotten what it's like to grow in darkness. You know your lost friend at work, you know what they're doing, groping in darkness. And if you, as a Christian, have forgotten what that's like, you need to go back in your mind and remember from what God has delivered you. How he called you from darkness into his marvelous light. This is for you were once not a people. And again, he quotes three different Old Testament passages here not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. I'm so thankful for God's mercy. I like to phrase, you are not a people, but now you're a people. You know what he's coming back to there, right? We are the people of God. And when we come in this place and we worship, for the purpose of offering spiritual sacrifices and proclaiming His excellencies. We are a family. We are a people. A chosen race. Hey, well, you know, well you know, I have this background, I have that background, I have, you know, I'm half this. No, you're not. You're, you're a believer. You're a child of God. I'm a child of God. That's what race we are. And I, you know, I'm, not, uh, I'm not big on a lot of things going around in the culture and critical race theory and all that. Um, and making everything about race, but I tell you what I'm also uh, against is making distinctions about race. You know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a Christian brother. I don't care about their race or their background, where they've come from. If they are in Christ and they are my brother or my sister, and it just, that's the way it ought to be. We're a new race of people. John says this to him, to those who believe, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That's your race, right there. You know who your father is? God's your father. And spiritually, we are a race of people. When we come together to share his excellencies and offer spiritual sacrifices, it ought to be the highlight of your week. And I confess, let me just be transparent. I I I have sometimes seen church as an obligation as a job, as a duty. And there are some Sundays where I think, oh, you know, we got to get we unloaded, we've got to do this, and, and then i got to preach, and I hope everything... I get so caught up in what I have to do that I forget the fact that this is a joy and a privilege. And you are my brothers and sisters. I get to come fellowship and see what God's doing in your life and tell you about the excellencies of what He's doing in my life. And it is a time we proclaim Christ, we lift Him up. Church is not about... I hate to tell you this, church is not about, you know, seven ways to be a better employee or get that next promotion. It's not about, you know, how God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You know, it's not about God wants you to be in the millionaire club, whatever. It's about God. And the reason I think that can rescue the church from the apathy and from the lack of long-term commitment that we're seeing across churches as numbers continue to decline in a lot of churches, is we remember what church is all about. Because it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about the person sitting next to you. It is about God and His excellence. And God's excellence never changes. And if people understand that church is for me to come and offer spiritual sacrifices to Jesus and proclaim the excellencies of God, they would not walk out. They would not leave because of some issue. You know why? Because Jesus still deserves your spiritual giving. He still deserves your spiritual sacrifices and God is still excellent. You say, yeah, but you should hear their music. God is still excellent. Excellent. No, hey, the preacher's not all that great. Maybe so, but God is excellent. Jesus is worthy. He is still wondrous and glorious, and it is your privilege to come and lift Him up in your heart and mind. And you say, "Well, I don't like the way they do this or that." You would be—you would not believe some of the reasons that you get for leaving particular churches, and I have heard them all. Some here. Many of them, literally, you'll have several people leave, and one will say, music's too fast. The other person says music's too slow. The music's too old. The music's too new. The music, it it just lays there. Too soft. Music's too loud. I've literally heard it all at the same time. You know, if, if, if it's all about music for you, you know what will happen if it's you? You'll leave the church. you know, say, well, the, the messages aren't relevant to how I live. Or whatever. If, if the message is from the Word of God, that's relevant to you. But if church for you is about being uh, made to feel good, you know what will happen? You'll leave the church. If church for you is about having some emotional experience where you just walk out, you know, and you're on cloud nine every time, and you just got recharged for the week, you know what's going to happen? You're going to leave the church. Because sooner or later, things are going to change or another church is going to come along that offers a better, more entertaining uh, style of worship and we'll mark it all down as worship. And you're going to leave the church. I, oh, I've heard people tell me so, so many interesting things. For a while there, when people left the church, uh, we we would send out letters saying, you know, respect your decision to not worship with us any longer, but could you help us be a better church? Because whatever caused you to leave might be on the hearts of other people. So if if you feel, you know, like you can, would you please express why you left? Some people actually respond to that. And And it was amazing the answers that they would get. One person said, I want my heart to soar and my toes to tap when I come come to church. Well, you're making it all about you. you. You've got the cart before the horse. It's not all about how you end up feeling. God is still worthy of your sacrifices, your spiritual giving. He is still worthy of your highest praise. And He is still worthy to have His excellence proclaimed. Now, if that has changed, somehow you tell me, how? And I said, well, this is, you know, you, you ask kind of thing. Uh, the services have been, quote, lame lately. Well, you know, if, if you're just waiting for sort of a bad string of sermons, you're going to leave the church. If you don't believe me, I, I have a few. I'll bring them I'm preaching for you. And if you come because you somehow want to feel something that you don't feel the rest of the week somehow, then you're missing walking in the light. He is not about a Sunday morning. He is about Monday through Saturday. You come on Sunday morning to celebrate all He's done and all He's doing. You walk your faith Monday through Saturday, and you come on Sunday to celebrate His excellence. Don't come here to you know somehow get what you didn't get the rest of the week although that may happen. Peter says, look, you're a people, chosen people of God, His own possession to proclaim His excellence. And that never changes. If people understood that's really what church is about, then they would be here regardless of what kind of week they had because you know what? God's excellence did not change. His holiness did not change. And if it wasn't the best week you've ever had, you know what? God is still good. God is still holy. God is still perfect. He is still sovereign. He is still in control. And He is still, trust me, worthy of your highest praise and deepest heartfelt worship. He doesn't change. We get the idea sometimes that God's standard of holiness, who God is and His character, is somehow diminished if my experience is not good on this earth. And that is not true his holiness, His goodness, His perfection, His glory, and His worthiness of our praise is not diminished one bit by your experience. He's still worthy. We build our foundation on Jesus. That's our purpose. And they, well, wait a minute, William. Gotcha got you this time because you have said in very recent sermons that our purpose is to make disciples. Really? Is that, the church when we, is that the purpose of the church when we gather? Now that is the function of the church. But I'm talking about like when we come on Sunday morning, is that the purpose for Sunday morning? No. No. Here's what's supposed to happen. We come and we celebrate. We lift up Christ. We, we talk about the excellencies of God. We dig into His Word. And then each individual believer, as they go, they make disciples. That's what happens Monday through Saturday, making disciples, and then, of course, bring them to church. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we're going to talk about the excellencies of the Most High. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, well, for you. We thank you for your goodness and grace, Father. You just keep giving and keep giving even if we don't deserve it, we know we don't deserve it. Father, it just humbles us. It amazes us how marvelous Your light is. Father, to walk in You is not a drudgery. And even, Father, when we are called to suffer, as Peter promises we will be, it's still a joy. And even when it's difficult and we have to be selfless, the Father, we have to sacrifice still no place I'd rather be than in your marvelous light. It is a joy to walk with my Jesus. We thank you that you would walk with someone like me, even to a cross. You are good. We love you, Lord, and thank you.